Hello, good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Welcome back to another episode of the Money Multiplier Podcast. Just like the last few episodes, I've got the unique pleasure of hosting uh, with my good friend and colleague, Hannah Kessler. Hannah, what's going on? Hey, Jonah. How are you doing today? I am doing well. Thank you for having me on the show again. I'm excited to talk through some of the infinite banking topics that we've seen over the last uh, week, over the last days that people have asked us. And man, I think it's uh, really unique that we get to do the podcast together because we've got a unique experience to talk to so many people that actually come through the doors of the uh, money multiplier, right? Because you're going to talk to them, uh, whether that's upfront in person as kind of the first contact at one of the events or during the application process. And then I've got the unique uh, pleasure of speaking with them after they get started and kind of helping them use their policies as they get going. And so that makes it really cool, kind of a unique pairing here so we can give some of our insight and knowledge to the folks out there who are interested in listening. That's right. I call it the fir- the full circle or the full yep. circle, the full, full package here from, from front to end. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. That is very, very cool. Well, we've got a very interesting topic today. I like this topic because there is a time or two where I get on the line with someone who's very interested in getting started and they ask this question. And so I'm excited to actually kind of walk through some of the answers because when they ask this question of me, sometimes I get a little taken back because personally, I don't believe that I've really got an answer for them. Like, And I can try to feed them an answer that maybe they want to hear. But a lot of times when they ask this question, they're looking for maybe a specific answer, right? And so Mm -hmm. uh, we're going to dive into that topic today and answer some of those frequently asked questions. So Hannah, if you want to jump in, tell us uh, your take on the topic and, of course, what today's topic is. Yeah, so so we're going to talk about the cons to the infinite banking concept. Uh, we, we get this, uh, I sometimes actually I do get this question when I am on the phone talking with folks. And I like the question, honestly, because it really gets me to think, you know, um, because right at the end of the day, there's no silver bullet out there for everybody. But in my humble opinion, I, I think everybody who stands in front of a mirror that, that can fog up the, the glass, everybody should be practicing infinite banking. But I like this question. It's it's good and it uh, has a new take on it. So um, and really, what sparked this topic too is because I received an email one time, and and this gentleman he was asking asking about you know he says hey I read your book Mapping Out the Millionaire Mystery, um, and you can go uh, Mapping Out the Millionaire Mystery was written by my dad Brent Kessler and, and our colleague Chris Noggle, and. Um, He was going on to say, but in today's markets and life insurance companies are different than what they were before COVID. Who is willing to pay more than 3% on the assets and whole life policies? I hear it's only a 1% to 2% max. That's not worth it. So, so it, it was really interesting. I really liked his take on it. And we had a good phone call and a good chat on it. And, and that's what really sparked the topic of, hey, well, what are the cons to infinite banking? I, I guess my first take on it, you know, when, when he did mention that, hey, COVID has changed the times of the industry, in my opinion, no, it did not, right? Because infinite banking, this whole platform and this concept, it's been around since 200 plus years. You know, it's even right. been around... 
around longer than our tax code. The tax code's only been here since 1913. So so no, there, there's no changes or difference of what's going on. So so he, here's my other con, you know, that, that some folks will say, you, you know, they're, they're lower returns, right? You, you don't get uh, high returns inside of your uh, whole life infinite banking policy that's designed for this infinite banking concept. But at the end of the day, what does Nelson Nash say in his book, Becoming Your Own Banker? This, this process, this concept is not about the rates of return. I mean, he says it right in the introductory page on page three or four or something. So what are your That's thoughts, right. Jonah? That's right. I thought it would be really cool to maybe walk through some of the things that we've heard folks say to us and the answers that we would give or the explanations that we would give them. So I think we made a list before the episode started. I'm going to jump into the first one, if that's okay. Mm -hmm. So uh, again, sometimes when folks ask this question of us, whether it's over the phone to us, Zoom calls in person, they say, you know, what are the cons of infinite banking or what's the downside? Because we like to talk about all the benefits, all the new things you can do, accomplish, finance in your lifestyle using this process. And sometimes if you spend 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, or an hour talking about all the positive things, somebody somewhere is going to say, well, where are the negative things, right? Mm -hmm. And so I have heard this statement before. Well, if I do an infinite banking policy, it takes too long to build up. It takes too long. I want to finance a car, a house, a rental property right away. I saw those in the examples that you guys were using. But when I started my policy, I can't do that right away, right? Mm -hmm. And so they mm -hmm. say, well, that, that, that's not what I want to do. Maybe I should just use my own money to go do that stuff instead of using the infinite banking process. That is a, uh, a statement or a con that I have heard. From Mr. Baking. Now, I've got an answer for him that I'm definitely going to jump into, and I'm wondering if you have anything to say on that topic. I guess the first thing that comes to my mind is, is that if they're saying that, they're not working with the right people. <laughs> Right, right. Because the fun thing about these policies is that you can design these things for any which way. You know, some folks, they need that higher liquidity. Hey, I, I need the cash out right now, 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 because I'm just in this financial hamster wheel and I need to get out of all of this debt or or I have this big opportunity that I need this cash for. So so that's my first thing. But th what what really the, the foundation of the, the answer to that question is, is that they're not thinking long range, right? I'm okay that in the early years to give up a few dollars to protect my family, to protect my assets. And at the same time, right, I'm still able to leverage the policy to go out, do X, Y, and Z with it. But, but really it doesn't take a long, long time to build up because if you are actively using this process and this concept, the larger the values are even going to be with inside of the policy. I go back to Nelson's example when he talks about the equipment financing and, you know, show when the, the difference is, hey, if I use the policy to finance one truck all the way down to four trucks, where am I at in, in the long haul? So, so I think people are thinking about it differently and they're not understanding the whole ideology about why we want to funnel dollars through the policy first. Number one, never losing the opportunity cost. Number two, the control of it. And then number three, the certainty and the protection that it also gives us. So that, that's my opinion on it. 
I love that answer. So here's one of the things that I tell folks a lot. Like, let's be real for a second here, okay? So if I start a policy, even the biggest policy I could possibly uh, uh, get my hands on, the dollars I have in my pocket I could get my hands on. So let's let's call it a huge one, $50,000 a year, $100,000 a year plus into a policy. And then I get on the phone with someone ready to help me and say, well, I want to buy my own private island and I can't do it yet, right? <laughs> Well, yeah. what's, what's, what's the answer to that? Well, two things. One, it's because private islands are really expensive and we didn't put all that money in the policy yet. Or two, it's because you've got to let your policy build and let it grow. Cash value builds and grows throughout the year. So sometimes when I hear that con, I take a look at the policy premiums and I see, oh, okay, $1,000 a month. That's awesome. It's a great place to start, but you're complaining about not being able to finance your, your house purchase yet. When you live in a half a million dollar home, does that make sense? So mm-hmm. sometimes it's like, uh, it, it can be a con if said in the right context. But at the same time, sometimes when we get that question, it's almost like, well, two things. Can we work? Can we work to build it up at all? Are you going to give, give it a chance here to let the cash values grow? And at the same time, two, like, let's be realistic about what we can accomplish with the dollars that you've gotten into the policy so far. So I just wanted to uh, bring that up. And, and one thing too, that I'm kind of thinking about, you know, one question that I do get, and this kind of comes from a lot of my real estate investors, you know, that they'll come to me and they'll say, Hannah, you know, I got a hundred thousand dollars inside of my policy, but this property that I want to go buy is 150,000. Should I even use the policy at all? And it's like, ding, ding, ding. Yes, you should. Right. Because it's okay to finance some of the purchase with the policy instead of none of it at all. You know, actually in my own life, you know, a few episodes back, Jonah, we were talking about my conversion van. I didn't have enough dollars inside of the policy to finance that thing 100%. I had maybe 85% of the cash, but that's okay. I used that 85% and then I just went and outsourced that other 15%. And then you know what I'm doing? I'm using my policy to pay off that that other 15%, that loan that I got on it. Oh. That's exactly right. I love that. I love that example. Okay. We've got some more cons that we want to talk about. Hannah, I think I'm going to let you take this one. What about if someone says, and a very popular person has said this on the airwaves, it got a lot of traction. I have to pay interest on my money. Why mm-hmm. would I do that? Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I yeah, know. This one's a good one. This one uh, gets me going. So, So really when folks are saying that, they don't understand what's going on. They're not understanding what's going on underneath the hood. Because no, when we're taking dollars out of the policy, we're not borrowing from our cash bucket that's physically sitting with inside of the policy. We're putting that policy up for collateral and we're taking a loan from the general funds of the insurance company. And, and let me even go deeper into that. We, we need to do a better job, in my opinion, on touching on this. But inside of the policy, our dollars are growing and compounding, uninterrupted compound interest, while we're taking loans out from the insurance company at a simple interest. So that's very powerful, too. But, but, but really why we're why we're taking loans and not physically withdrawing the money out is is because when we're taking loans and borrowing from the general funds we're never interrupting that compounding on the cash inside of the policy that's absolutely right over on our channel the banking bros we like to use cups we actually have something called a three cup setup and the reason we use cups 
uh, really is because to illustrate that if you put your deposit dollars, your premium dollars inside of cup one, and the insurance company puts dollars inside of cup two, cash value that you can use, and you decide to reach your hand in that second cup, take all that money out and spend it, it's a, it's a good way to illustrate that cup one never was impacted. You didn't put your hand there and reach in and take anything out and spend it all. And that's why we like to illustrate with just understanding that cash value is a completely different pool of money than your deposited dollars. It's it's mm-hmm. just separate. So if someone says, I have to pay interest on my money, the answer actually is, no, you don't. You're not actually understanding, like Hannah said, what's going on under the hood. It's not your money that you're taking out. That is a benefit. That is a huge benefit. You put in your dollars just to take out your dollars. Well, who in the world's going to pay you interest on that, right? Mm-hmm. You got to let it sit traditionally. Here, we're going to use the insurance company's money. It's liquid every step of the way. I love that. I love that. Okay, cool. I think I've got one that folks have said once or twice. They say, Jonah, whole life insurance is too expensive. Yeah. They, uh, there's a very popular phrase out there that is uh, that goes, buy term and invest the difference, right? Mm-hmm. And the reason that phrase is popular is because term insurance is less expensive. So let's dive into this for just a second. Can we, can we, again, I just want to explain, but I want to be real with you. I don't want to sugarcoat anything. Someone says buy term and invest the difference or whole life is too expensive. They're comparing the two. Would you agree? Yes. If I said apples are more expensive than oranges, I'm comparing them as far as, listen, it's just a fruit I'm going to eat. and One's more expensive than the other, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's what I'm comparing. But let's jump into what they're comparing for a second. Term insurance. Buy term, invest the difference. Whole life is more expensive than term. Term insurance offers you putting money into that plan or program and the insurance company paying a death benefit when you pass away. That is the complete and total definition of term. There's not any other avenues or aspects that we can jump into. Generally, you can have a term for 10, 20, 30 years, but that is term insurance. I call it renting insurance. I I think that's the easiest way to explain it. You're renting the insurance for that set term, uh, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, whatever it may be. And you're not building up any equity, just like the difference between buying a house versus renting a house. You're not building up any equity because all you're doing is just renting it. That's exactly correct. So when we talk about whole life insurance, the other comparison in this equation Well, whole life insurance has another avenue, another branch, and it's cash value. Term insurance doesn't touch on this, doesn't have this, doesn't have anything to do with this, where whole life has cash value. So my question for you is, if we're comparing something that has a death benefit versus something that has cash value and a death benefit, it does not seem fair to say one is more expensive than the other. Well, one comes with more things. Who would, in their right mind, walk into Best Buy and say, oh my goodness, the uh, HD, TV, LG, all the bells and whistles is more expensive than this other one. Well, does the other one have all of that stuff? No? Okay, then. Well, we know why it's more expensive then, right? I mean, doesn't that make sense? It's just so funny to me how someone as popular as some of these uh, radio hosts and, and celebrities can sit there and say, oh, well, it's more expensive. Buy term, invest the difference. All you need to compare is price. When it's like, come on, come on, you've got to know that there's more going on inside of whole life than there is term life. And if there's more going on, of course, it's more expensive. Now, it is more expensive. So I want to touch on that. But I also want to touch on 
the way that we design these policies. See, when you get started with an infinite banking policy with us here at the Money Multiplier, you get to choose your premium. You get to choose. You get to pick it. Hannah, we've seen premiums all over the place, right? I think mm-hmm. I've seen premiums as low as, you know, $100 a month or so, maybe if they're insuring their children or something like that. I've seen premiums that are way big, six figures, seven figures before, right? You get to pick that. When I started my very first policy, it was $5,000 all year. That's what I had. That's what I could afford. That's what I put in. And I've started more since then that are higher, but that's, I picked it, right? And so for me to say, well, whole life's too expensive when I'm the one picking the premium, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me either, right? Yeah, good. You can start with what makes sense for you and your family. Good. And I want to dive in deeper too, because I think why folks touch on it as it's too expensive is because they are looking at it in the traditional view of the quote unquote cost of the insurance. So let's just kind of touch on that for some of the analyticals that are listening to this. When we're talking about whole life versus term, right, you kind of just back to my example of renting insurance versus buying insurance, right? Renting the house versus buying the house, where in whole life, you're building up the equity inside of the house. So so with term, what people don't understand, and, and this is why I get a little frustrated, just like how you said, Jonah, just with the gurus that are out there who are so big, is, is that they don't touch on, well, hey, once my term is up, let's say I get this policy and, and I'm 30 years old and I have a 30 year term policy. Once I am 60 years old, that term is up. So what has to happen now? I have to go back in at six, at 30 years later at 60 years old and go buy another term policy if I want that coverage on myself for my family. So at that time, now I'm 30 years older, I'm 60, I may have some health challenges going on. And because I'm older, the cost of that insurance is a lot higher now too. So what some folks don't understand is, is that in whole life, it's built in. It, it literally says it in the name, it's whole life. The insurance company understands that they're going to have to pay out this death claim at the end of your lifetime. And and, and so I, I kind of use the other analogy of like how term, you're kind of betting against the insurance company where, where you're saying, no, no, no insurance company, I for sure will die within this term. How fun is that when I say it like that, right? Whereas whole life, you're betting with the insurance company. You guys are kind of going on this this lovely parallel track together. So that's all I wanted to say. I love that. Have you ever run into someone, Hannah, where they their term ended? They're 50, 55, 60, 65, and their term insurance was up. Have you ever talked to someone like that and asked them about how much getting term insurance again at 50, 55, or 60 costs? Because I had this happen to me recently, and I was baffled. Okay. I'm not joking. By the cost of term insurance for a, I think I think the gentleman was 55 years old. It was ridiculous. I'd yeah. never seen something like this. It was over two thousand dollars a month for the term insurance again. Because of course, if you get term insurance at that age, the insurance company saying, "Well, we know you're going this time, right?" Yep. And against, just like you said. So, okay. I love that. I love that for bringing it up. Very cool. Well, Hannah, so so here's the fun part. We've got a few more cons that we want to walk through, but but maybe we should do a part two, right? Okay. Come yeah, back, come back on two. the next episode for part two 
as we walk through some more cons. But before we head out, I actually wanted to give a shout out to all of the members of the Money Multiplier who are doing a live event or speaking somewhere in the next upcoming week. So that way, if you're in this town or close to the city and you want to go hear us live and in person, invite a friend, invite a family member, you surely can. So Hannah, I think you're uh, in Arizona in the uh, end of July, about one month away. Is that right? That's right. So July 28th, uh, the town is called Gilbert. It's right outside Phoenix. So Gilbert, Arizona, one day event, July 28th. I'll be there. Um, y'all just uh, uh, call, email, text me. My email is hannah at themoneymultiplier.com if you want to learn how to join. And then immediately following that one, the next day, July 29th and 30th, Pops and I, we're going to go up to Buffalo, New York, where Chris has a, a two-day live event. And with that one, you just go to moneyschoolrei.com forward slash July. And uh, we'll, we'll link it down below as well. But uh, but but uh, tickets are going, you know, so uh, 30 days out. I love that. So that's July 28th in Arizona. That's July 29th and 30th in Buffalo, New York. Uh, a little bit closer in the next upcoming weeks on July 5th, one of our colleagues, Jesse Durham, is doing a live presentation that is in North Carolina. I believe it is in Durham, North Carolina. And uh, on July 9th, the Banking Brothers, which is myself and my brother Jeremiah Du, we're going to be in Greenville, South Carolina. Uh, and that is uh, another live speaking event. And again, that is July 9th. If you need any details on the South Carolina or North Carolina event, uh, you can email myself. That is Jonah, J-O-N-A-H at themoneymultiplier.com. And I'll be able to get you those details. Thank you guys so much for joining us on another episode of the Money Multiplier podcast. We love you. We'll talk to you next time and have a great day. See you then. 